Revelation chapter 16. In Genesis chapter 15, we have the account of God making a covenant with Abraham. And the Lord said to Abraham, whose name at that point was still Abram, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham did not see how this was possible as he and Sarah did not have any children. And the Lord told him, A son coming from your own body will be your heir. Look at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. So shall your offspring be. And we read these amazing words. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. And then the Lord promised him the land of Palestine. And when Abraham asked, you know, how will I know? Um, how can I be certain that the land of Palestine will belong to my descendants? The Lord told him to sacrifice some animals. And we read and let me read to you from the passage as the sun was setting. Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sins of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. It were as though God is saying to Abraham, listen, I would let you stay here and have sons and then your sons would have sons and then they would multiply and then you would you would have the land of Palestine. But I actually need for your descendants to sort of leave here for a while. They need to go away for 400 years and then I'll bring them back. The reason I need them to go away, because the sins of the Amorite has not yet filled up this, this bowl, if you wish. And then once it's filled up, then I will bring your people in and they will drive out the Amorites. Uh, the idea that there is some type of vessel that once you fill it up, that's it. The divine wrath comes and then there is judgment. We have the same concept from Jesus in Matthew 23, uh, a chapter of the seven woes, in which he says, so you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the fathers. Fill up, then, the measure of the sin of your forefathers. In both cases, we have this idea of people doing things wrong and judgment happening. But there seems to be a gap between what they have done wrong and the judgment that will come on them. There is a gap in Abraham's life in many areas between promise and fulfillment but here between the threat and the reality of condemnation. And God tells Abraham, you're actually going to be dead. You're going to live a long time, but you're actually going to be dead before this judgment will come. Here in the book of Revelation in chapter 6, we are told that the saints, the, the souls of the saints are under the altar and they cry out, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the land and avenge our blood. They are told to wait a little longer because until the number of your fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. So we, we come up with this idea time and time again that once you reach, if you wish, critical mass, then that's it, something is going to happen. Last Sunday we saw that there were seven angels who were given seven bowls, seven plagues, 
They were, these bowls were filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And we saw the connection between the instituting of the first covenant, but also the sacrificial system. That blood was there, the blood was sprinkled on the people, or the blood was poured out at the base of the altar. Indeed, the language of chapter 15 is that of the old covenant, a tabernacle, the testimony of the temple. There's also the connection with God's wrath from passages in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. But I start out the way that I do because I think we need to appreciate and understand something, and that is that God's wrath is not simply a reaction, that it can only be triggered by a certain level of wickedness, that somehow there's a divine thermostat in heaven, and when the Amorites reach that, that's it. It's going to happen when the Jews, as Jesus said, because of what they had done, when it reached a certain point, then the destruction of Jerusalem would come. That somehow God must wait until the trigger happens and then he can do what he wants. Chapter 15 makes abundantly clear, at least to me, that God's wrath is his own choice. It is his sovereign action against disobedience, against the breaking of the covenant. There are certain parameters, if you wish, which are described in the Old Testament. But God is not bound by any restrictions. His actions are not dictated by our actions or inactions. And as I mentioned last Sunday, the wrath of God is pictured in the last verse of chapter 15 as being something beyond us. As the land was dark when Jesus was on the cross, it was dark for three hours, and here we are told that the temple is filled with the smoke of the glory of God and people could not enter it until his wrath had been poured out. I think we are very curious, and I almost have a mental picture of us sort of standing on our tiptoes, wanting to look over the fence into the wrath of God as it's being poured out. Um, No, it is something beyond us. And in fact, it is entirely appropriate for us to speak of God's holy wrath. That is, just as everything is holy about God, and it is overwhelming to us, so is his wrath that we cannot fully appreciate or comprehend its nature. But we are given some insight. We do know certain things about God, even though God is holy, 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 thrice holy. We do know things about him. And so, even though his wrath is holy and ultimately beyond our, our ability to completely comprehend, we can know something of the wrath of God. Here, it is a glimpse in chapter 16 and beyond, and not in literal terms, but even in metaphors, to almost sort of mediate, because if we were to see the wrath of God full on, it would destroy us. I'm convinced of it. We cannot, we, we cannot comprehend it. It is too much for us. But God wants us to know that wrath exists, and that his wrath is holy, and his wrath will be poured out on those who have broken the covenant. Today we begin to look at the seven bowls of God's wrath, as described in chapter 16. One thing I would have you notice, they match very closely the seven trumpets that were mentioned earlier in the book of Revelation. And both sets of sevens match various plagues that are found in the book of Exodus, the ten plagues that God poured out on Egypt. And so the language of Exodus continues. Uh, we saw the Song of Moses And then we read about the tabernacle. Now we have the plagues of Egypt that are being poured out. 
There is one significant difference if you're keeping notes, if you want to compare. In the trumpets, it is always limited. It's always one-third of something. So one-third of the land, trees, grass were burned. Uh, one-third of the sea becomes blood. One-third of the sea creatures die. One-third of the ships are destroyed. One-third of the fresh waters become wormwood. One-third of the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. One-third of mankind is killed. That's not what we see here. Those are the trumpets. Now we have the bowls. God's wrath being poured out. And here the destruction that is described is total. Not of the whole earth, but of those who have broken the covenant. One more thing before we get into chapter 16. In Leviticus chapter 26, God speaks to Israel and he tells them of the rewards that they will receive if they obey him and the punishments that they will receive if they disobey. And we read this. If you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. What we find in chapter 16 is a sevenfold judgment, if you wish. Seven times over. And it is as their sins deserve. And we will see that as we go through. First of all, verse number one, the authorizing of the seven plagues. If you look at verse one, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The command authorizing the judgments is given by a loud voice from the temple. The temple represents the presence of God, the being of God. And the loud voice gives the command, go do this, pour out the bowls of God's wrath. There are several things to note here. First of all, the language of pouring out is found throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, and specifically the word that is used. Um, it is a Greek word, but it's also found in the Old Testament in the Septuagint, the Greek translation. It is used for pouring out blood after sacrifices at the base of the altar. It is used for the shedding of innocent blood through idolatry and oppression. It is used in the book of Ezekiel when God says he will pour out his wrath. In the New Testament, when Jesus instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you. I don't know that we always think of that because we always when I think of the blood of Christ, I think of his blood being shed. But he actually uses the phrase, this is my blood, which is poured out. And that can be a coincidence. It cannot be a coincidence that it is used that way. Jesus also spoke about the fact that he was bringing something new. And you don't, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. You do not pour new wine into old wineskins because then they will burst. And that's certainly what happened to Israel. Rather, you pour new wine into new wineskins. The shedding of the blood of the martyrs is also spoken of in terms of their blood being poured out. What about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? Uh, when Peter preaches, he quotes from the book of Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all people. So you might say, well, which of these pouring out is intended in this particular passage? I would say all of them. You bring them all together. The blood being poured out of, sac of sacrifice, the blood of Christ. But since they have rejected his sacrifice, they said his blood be on us and on our children. Okay, their blood will be poured out, as we will see with one of the plagues. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit. They refuse 
they have rejected the Holy Spirit. They have oppressed others. They have resisted the Holy Spirit. And therefore God's wrath will be poured out on them. And the old wineskin of Israel is about to burst as the new wine of the gospel is proclaimed. And then secondly, I mentioned this a few moments ago, we need to know, we need to appreciate that the wrath of God is poured out by his command. It is not a dam or a levy that has broken under the pressure of human wickedness. It is an active choosing. It is an active commanding of judgment. God judges because he chooses to. So the authorization is given, and now we face the first bowl in verse number two. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. This first plague has no equivalent with the trumpets, but it certainly does with the sixth plague in Egypt in which boils broke out on the people. Here it's not boils, it is described as ugly and painful sores that broke out. Go back to the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 28, Moses tells Israel, you need to obey God. And if you don't, Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors, festering sores, and the itch from which you cannot be cured. The Lord will afflict your knees and legs with painful boils that cannot be cured, spreading from the soles of your feet to the top of your head. What John is describing here is what God promised Israel. If you break the covenant, this is what's going to happen to you. You will have these painful and ugly sores. And just as God poured out sores and boils on the Egyptians for persecuting his people, now God is going to pour out these sores on those who persecute his church. But there's something else. There's a certain irony here. The sores happen to people who already have a mark on their flesh. Not literally, but they have taken the mark of the beast. And I know that this is not what is intended, but for me, I have a certain image of someone who has taken the mark of the beast. And again, it's not literal, but let's say for the sake of argument, a literal mark. And then it gets infected and it becomes an ugly, festering, painful sore. Those who decided to abandon the faith and to worship an image and an idol and to take his number, to take his mark, God says, okay, you want that mark? Here, let me give you my own mark. And he gives them the bowl of wrath of sores, painful and ugly sores, as a sign of his wrath. Is it literal? No, I don't think that it is. I think the intent is, you know what I did to the Egyptians? I will judge you in the same way. The second bowl is verse number three. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. Here we have a correspondence with the second trumpet, but there it's one third of the sea. One third of the ships are destroyed. One third of the sea creatures die. This is the first plague, the opening plague that Moses brought or God through Moses brought on Egypt. It is worth noting, if you take notes, that blood is mentioned four times in this particular chapter. Four is the number of Israel. It is the number of the land. Okay? I think what is intended here is not the blood per se, because it's mentioned in the next plague as well. 
as much as what it will do to maritime commerce. We will see this in chapter 18. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living by the sea will stand far off. When they see God's wrath poured out on Jerusalem, on his people, it sort of takes their breath away. And here you see the sea being contaminated, if you wish, by God's wrath. It turns into blood like that of a dead man. The third bowl is in verse number four. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. So again, we have here it's split into two. In Egypt it was one, and in the trumpets it's one. But here I think it isn't commerce by sea. It's fresh water, and water is a symbol of life. Throughout the Old Testament, it is a symbol of blessing. But because of apostasy, because they have turned against God, God turns his wrath and pours his wrath on them, and it becomes polluted and unclean, just as their apostasy had turned their faith into something unclean and polluted. The judgment matches the sin. It has been suggested that there's intended here or implied here that not only, well, they have shed the blood of the prophets, we'll see in a minute, but now they will have to drink blood. Those who shed blood, their punishment will be to drink blood. In verses 5, 6, and 7, we have almost an interlude. Not, I guess not almost, it is an interlude. There is a break here in the action, if you wish. If you look at verse 5, Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, and you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and, prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Here we see a response from heaven in the midst of the judgments. It is a response which says that what God is doing is just and true. Is it embarrassing for you to hear this? Is it embarrassing for us to read this today? Um, I think we don't want to talk about God's judgments In fact, I would suspect that many people who would claim to know something about the Bible or the Christian faith would think that such actions as are described here in chapters 15 and 16 are, are beneath God. That this is a primitive God. This is a primitive deity. That the God we worship is, is far more sophisticated, far more developed. That, that he would not be angry to such an extent as to pour out his wrath. That he... He has better control of his temper. No, we are reminded here that God's judgments are just and true. And why, why does John say this? Why, why does this response from heaven say this? First of all, because God is holy. He is the Holy One. He is the eternally Holy One who, who was and who is. He alone is qualified and fit to judge correctly. That's why the angel says that what he does is just and true. And if this is all we heard from heaven, that would be enough. But there is more. Because the judgments are appropriate to the actions of those being judged. Those who shed blood are being given blood to drink. Not literally, but in the sense 
of what is happening to them is appropriate to their actions. Almost in the sense of drinking their own blood. It's worth noting that in the Old Testament and then in the Gospels, the characteristic crime of Israel is that of murdering the prophets. Jesus mentions it as the reason that judgment will come on that generation from the blood of Abel to Zacharias, who was killed between the altar and the temple. All that righteous blood is going to come on this generation. Why? Because they deserve it. They get as they deserve. And here again, there's a certain irony. In chapter 5, we read, And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God. They're singing to the Lamb. So the Lamb received his reward based on the blood he shed his own. Well, now we have people who have also shed blood, not their own, but the blood of others. And what will they get? They will get exactly what they deserve, what they are worthy of, and that is judgment. Now the altar responds, and the altar says, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. We've seen in, in our study of chapter 6 that the altar represents the prayers of God's people, the prayers of the saints. It is where the martyrs are. It is where their blood has been shed. It is where they cry out for justice. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the land and avenge our blood? Now, as the judgment of God is being poured out, they agree, they concur. What you are doing, what we've seen thus far, these first three bowls, yes. First four bowls, yes. What you're doing, this is just. This is true. This is holy wrath. Now, we might be, if we're cynical, we might think, well, yeah, these people just want revenge. So they're happy that revenge is finally happening, that they're being avenged. Well, stop and think a minute. What are they saying? They are saying, we agree with you, God, in what you're doing. Well, that would sort of make sense, wouldn't you think? That someone would agree with what God is doing, that someone would concur that what God is doing is right. They are not like so many of us who presume to make judgments about God. And sometimes we think, well, I don't think God should have done that. I think that was too harsh. Why did God let that happen? In fact, some people be, are so bold as to say, if there is a God, he must be the devil. Because what kind of God would allow these things to happen? No, God's people agree with what God has done. They are in agreement with his actions. Let me read to you from Psalm 79. Here Asaph, the psalmist, writes, of some destruction that had happened to Jerusalem because of the Gentiles. They have poured out blood like water all around Jerusalem. There again we have the expression of being poured out. Before our eyes make known among the nations that you avenge the outpoured blood of your servants, pay back into the laps of our neighbors seven times the reproach they have hurled at you, O Lord. Old Testament saints seem to understand the concept of God avenging his people. But then I think we might say, well, those people are primitive. If only they could be like us, far more sophisticated, they would be very, very disturbed by the idea of God's judgment. 
But no, God's people should be in agreement. They should say, yes, yes, Lord God Almighty, what you have done is just and true. Now we come to the fourth bull. And look, if you would, in verses 8 and 9. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. This has no equivalent among the plagues of Egypt unless we consider it in terms of the opposite. In Egypt, we have the plague of darkness, and here we have the plague of light, too much light. The sun is burning the people. But what is intended here? What, what is God trying to say through John with regard to this judgment? It is the opposite. It is the reversal of God's blessing on his people. Israel was not only guided through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud, they were also shielded by the shadow of the Almighty. We read of God's blessing time and time again in the Old Testament in terms of protection from the sun. And let me read to you several passages from Psalm 121. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Jeremiah 17. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. But you know what? We don't even need to go to the Old Testament. We can stay here in the book of Revelation in chapter 7. Speaking of God's people, the martyrs who are in heaven. We read, He who sits on the throne will spread out his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to the springs of living water. God's blessing on his people is protection. Protection from the heat of the sun, from scorching. And now, when God's wrath is being poured out, it is described as the exact opposite. God will, if you wish, turn up the sun. God has removed his protection, and he will now let them be assaulted by the things of nature. Some things to consider about these two verses. First of all, the Son is seen as being given power, but God is the one who gives it power. If you look in verse number 9, they curse the name of God who had control over these plagues. Lest we think, oh, somehow it's, it's, it's a sunspot. You know, somehow the sun's out of control. No, this is something that God does. He is in control of these plagues. He is active. He sends judgment. I still think that is very hard for us to get our minds around. I think we are far less biblical in our thinking than we might recognize. Do you know Psalm 46? It's a wonderful psalm. 
It begins, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. It's a wonderful psalm of comfort. But there's a verse in there that I don't know if you remember as well as you do the rest of the psalm. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. God, desolation, we, we don't put those things together. And, and why not? I think our thinking is less biblical than it should be. Someone wrote an, uh, an editorial in the op-ed section of the L.A. Times several weeks ago, and, and, and the author insisted, do not call a hurricane an act of God. Then who is in control? Then who is the master of the universe? Who is the Lord of all creation? And then I, I hope that you notice in verse number 9, that those who suffered these plagues cursed God. They refused to repent. They refused to glorify him. We saw this with the sixth trumpet, that their actions are contrary to the eternal gospel and that they refuse to give God's glory. But stop and think a minute. Does this refusal remind you of anyone else? Can you think of anyone else in the Bible who was assaulted by plagues and refused to give in? who refused to repent. Actually, he would sort of fake repentance for a while, and then when the plague was gone, then he changed his mind. Pharaoh. And so what John pictures here is what we find human nature doing, that when difficulties come, when God's judgment comes, they harden their hearts against God. They do not repent. They refuse to repent. They refuse to give God glory. How do people respond to judgment? We've already seen um, at least three passages in the book of Revelation that describe how people respond to judgment. In chapter 6, the sixth seal, they call on the mountains and the rocks to fall on them to hide them from the wrath of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That is, kill me. I want to die. I don't want to repent. I want to die. In chapter 9, the fifth trumpet, people will seek death. I want to die but they will not be able to die. Also in chapter 9, in the face of judgment, people will not repent. And here in chapter 16, the fourth bull, they curse God and they refuse to repent. Three times, by the way, in this chapter, we will be told that people will curse God. Now, I don't know about you, but it doesn't make sense to me to curse someone who has all this power. I mean, if someone has the power to do these devastating things, I would think you'd want him on your side. And I think in our own sinful thinking, we would argue that, that God is just approaching this whole business the wrong way. You know how it's easy. You get, what is it, more flies with honey than with vinegar? That if God really wanted people to repent, that he should be a lot nicer. That you're not going to get people to repent if you send these terrible plagues on them. Well, let me remind you of something that these, their whole lives weren't plagues. That they had, in fact, enjoyed the grace of God in providing sunlight and rain and food and family and community. God, God had given them, if you wish, a lot of honey before the vinegar comes along. 
But there's something else, and that is, on our own, we will never repent. It is contrary to our nature as human beings. The only way a human being will repent is if God gives him or her the gift of repentance. And these people have refused, like Pharaoh, time and time and time again to repent. They refuse to glorify God. Pharaoh finally gives in after the tenth plague. But what happens afterwards? He changes his mind. And he goes after Israel. Pharaoh's not a wicked man. Pharaoh's a man. He's a human being. He is us. That is the way we are as people. And when we read that people curse God and refuse to repent, they're being people. They're being human. And the blame is not on God, but the blame is on them. I think if you were to ask people, if you should say to them, you need to repent, they would say, well, why should I repent? If God is so mean, if he's so unjust, if he's so unfair, arbitrary, I mean, if you were only to read chapters 15 and 16, uh, you might think that God was an ogre. And, and, and why, would I, why would I give such a person an inch? I'm not going to give an inch. I'm not going to repent at all. I've not done anything wrong. And even if I had, I'm not going to give him the satisfaction of admitting it. Because he's unfair and unjust and arbitrary in what he does. Because why is he judging me now? Why didn't he judge me before? And what we find is that God's patience is mistaken for either passivity or the fact that he doesn't really care. God gave the Amorites four centuries to repent of their wickedness. And instead they just kept piling wickedness upon wickedness upon wickedness. He gave Pharaoh ten plagues to repent. And he didn't. And even at the end he didn't. And God killed him in the Red Sea. See, I think God is far fairer than we would imagine. He is not arbitrary. He is not capricious. He is a God of great grace. But let's bring it closer to home. When was the last time that you said to someone, you know what, you need to repent? When was the last time you said that to anyone? We may have never said that to anyone. And why is it that we are afraid to tell people that they need to repent? Do we think that God is unfair? Do we think that he is unjust? We live in an age in which one's self-image seems to be the most important thing in a person's life. For us to say to them, you know, there's someone who knows you better than anybody else. And this person says, you're a sinner and you need to repent. Never heard anything so outrageous. Never been so offended. But do we agree with what the saints said? Yes, Lord God Almighty. True and just are your judgments. You are fair. You are right in what you do. If if we have not reached that same conclusion, then yes, God is very troubling to us. What God does seems highly unfair. 
we may even think that God needs to answer for some of what he has done. And we are wrong. Because God is holy, he is just, and he is true. And even these terrible judgments which are being poured out are holy judgments. They are expressions of his holy wrath. And we should accept them as such. Let's pray together. Father, we ask carefully that you would forgive us for our sitting in judgment on you. It doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen. When we, we believe that somehow you've been unfair, that you, and here as the judgments are described, it's just, this seems almost barbaric. That, that people are going to drink blood and the water's turned to blood. They have all these painful sores. It, it's inhuman. And we find ourselves exalting ourselves over you. May we humble ourselves before you and say with your people, Yes, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your judgments. You are right in what you do. And as we speak to others, we need not use the word repent, but may we have the courage, first of all, to be reminded that they are in need of repentance, but also to be reminded that you know them you will judge them. That you have sent someone to stand in their place, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They need to turn from their own ways and turn to your ways. We thank you for the wonderful gift of repentance. And if there are those here today in need of this gift, we ask that you would graciously Tenderly give them this gift. I thank you that we could meet together today to worship you. I ask that your spirit and grace would go with us as we leave this place. May we, as we walk through this world this week, be lights in a world of darkness. May your law guide our steps and our decisions and all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together?
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Yeah, it was like...